This episode of I Save That Podcast is sponsored by IV Watch, maker of IV Watch Model 400. The Model 400 is a first of its kind, non invasive device that continuously monitors peripheral IVs for infiltration and extravasation events. IV Watch allows clinicians to leverage technology to help identify infiltrations as early as possible. IV Watch also sponsors the work of MyIV.com, an online resource dedicated to empowering patients with information on all things IV. Simplified. Visit IVWatch.com and MyIV.com to learn more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of the I Save That Podcast. This is Eric Sager, Ava, Director of Communications and the Editor of the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access. I'm joined, as always, by Ava, Director of Clinical Education, Judy Thompson. Hello, Judy. Hey, Eric. How are you? Good to talk to you today. (laughs) Always great. It's going great. It's been busy. It's been busy. But, as always, uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited, and, and we have John on the line as well. We do making his his show debut. Hey. It's Ava, director at large, John Bell. John, you joined the Ava board at the beginning of 2019. Welcome. How are how yes. are things going? Going great, and up here in Maine, and it's, spring has been here for a couple of days. It's going to get cold and rainy the next few days, but always glad to see spring in Maine. But it's it's great to have you on the show. Uh, we're excited about this episode. Well, I, I can't speak for, for Judy or John, but I know I'm excited for this episode for two reasons. One, Ava announced the launch of the Ava Academy. And a, a little bit later, Ramsey's going to chat with uh, Skender, the founder of Clinician Exchange, who helped build the innovative and cutting edge you know, learning management system that Ava members and, and anyone uh, will be able to use moving forward to further their education. And I will also chat with Lauren Baki, uh, the author of an upcoming patient perspective article set to publish in the summer issue of Java. So we have a lot of great content, and a lot of good things happening. As Judy mentioned, it's it's been busy at Ava. It has been busy and bustling. Ava Academy, we we launched last week, which is mm-hmm. really exciting because so much work and energy has been put into that, and we have just a quite a few where we didn't ha- not have those before. So excited about that. And right. um, we have a pick and search course, which is great. Midline mm-hmm. care and maintenance, um, some care and other care and maintenance courses, which are great for not only the vascular access clinician, but also the generalist out there that wants to know how to take care of lines a little bit better. For sure. And and I think one of the things that's great about Academy is, Judy, you can you know, speak to this. It's going to offer education for the beginning the intermediate and, you know, the advanced clinicians, kind of the whole realm. It's kind of for everyone. You know, what are your thoughts on that? The courses we have right now, we we have a few. We have a few of the procedural courses, care and maintenance courses. The ones that we're storyboarding right now, I'm very excited about. So they're a little bit more advanced technique. I would love to start working on an IO course. What do you think about that, John Bell? Oh, I think that's that's a such an important need. Um, IO is uh, completely underutilized. Um, I'm specifically in my sphere, which is emergency department. We will stab people 15 times trying to get a peripheral IV and end up with some sketchy IV and when, when we should have just used the IO. It's underutilized, I think, primarily because it's been undereducated and because people consider it to be barbaric, and yet people will will stick a patient multiple times when the IO you can get 98% of the time the first time. Right. So it seems much less barbaric when you put it into that, into that terminology. So that that's, there's a definite need for that education. Yeah. And the Academy can help bridge that gap for sure. So I think there's a lot of great things on there. And as Judy, you mentioned, continuing to develop further and further content, you know, specific things that clinicians such as yourself can utilize as they continue to further their education. Yeah. And I think as, as she referred to also just standardizing education, um, having, having a message that's going to, going out all across the country and all across the world where each hospital doesn't have to develop their own education, but that we're, everybody's talking with the same talking points, looking at the same data, looking at the same research. There's a tremendous potential here. Um, hospitals are all the time looking for education 
resources. And, you know, one of the problems with uh, a lot of education resources that have been out there for the past, say, decade, is it costs a lot of money uh, to fly somebody in and have them train people to do ultrasound guided peripheral IV or to maybe subscribe to some education service for your VAT to have uh, PIC training. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, with what's going on now with Academy, uh, there's a potential for uh, something that's very, very beneficial to a hospital system, but doesn't cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, so it's very easy for them to put that into their budget. Right. And then this electronic stuff is great because you can access that. Um, you can put that into your electronic learning management system on an annual basis. So like a care and maintenance class to be able to have uh, if your staff nurses are doing dressing changes on uh, CVCs and PICs, to be able to have them go through that class every year and get those main points reinforced year after year after year is, is going to be tremendous. Yeah, kind of driving the point home across the entire 365-day calendar and all the, the things that clinicians could do. They could take a look at some modules on their break or in the evening after they get off work or you know whatever is comfortable for them. I think that it's a really great asset that, that Ava's putting out. And, and, and we'd like to take a time now to mention that this series is made possible by support from Ava industry partners like SecureCath and AngioDynamics. SecureCath provides improved catheter securement and will reduce complications compared to any temporary unreliable adhesive. SecureCath is for the life of the line because patients deserve better. And AngioDynamics is a medical device manufacturer with strong presence in the vascular access market. They offer a vast vascular access catheter portfolio, which includes BioFlow with Indexo technology, a thrombus reducing catheter material proven to lower platelet adhesion in comparison to competitors. In addition, AngioDynamics also offers Beam Ultrasound, a handheld app-based wireless ultrasound device. AngioDynamics providing solutions to the patients globally. And Judy, I'd like to get a little more information from you. Can you tell us a little bit about what is available in the core spectrum, like in addition to those, you know, you said the midline insertion cores, like there's some stuff in there from previous AVA conferences, correct? Oh, absolutely. So we have courses or the lineup from 2018, 2017 that can go in, you can view the courses and you can also view them for CE. So there's a couple different selections there. Some of the great ones in there, some of the classics, like Andrew Bulmer. Um, everybody was raving about his 2017. Yeah, that was fantastic. We also have our Java articles in there for CE. So go on in, peruse the article, and then you can get your CE questions. The content is just going to build. And being digital content, when the research changes or evidence changes, we can go revise that bit of it. So I'm so excited about this platform and what we can do and the education we can provide. That's awesome to hear that Dr. Bulmer's uh, presentation from 2017 is on there. I, I still haven't talk, stopped talking about that, that presentation. For me, it was it was worth the price of admission uh, for that whole conference in Phoenix. Um, if, if you haven't seen it yet, listeners, you got to go, you got to w- go watch this um, because he's doing something that just nobody else has done and that is to look inside the vein and dynamically in three dimensions look at what is going on when you have a a peripheral iv catheter um, placed in in a vein and just to look at um how it how it's in the vein and what how it is in situ and then to look at what happens when we flush it you know basically he's taking an eyeball and putting it inside the vein and nobody's ever been able to do that before. And he has the technology and he has the financing to be able to do that. And it was a a literally life changing look at, at things that we've just taken for granted that we're putting this plastic catheter in somebody's arm and that everything's okay. Um, But we don't really know what happens. And he's looking at, you know, what, how does it, how does thrombus start forming? How does phlebitis get set off? Just my jaw was on the floor the entire presentation. And and like I said, I've talked about it to everybody. 
and you it's great that it's there go watch that presentation it'll change your uh, view of vascular access there's all kind of great content in there from the avatar group and the australians are our dear friends have done a lot of great things in the land down under and uh, we spoke to them earlier this season actually on the podcast and there's yeah. other presentations on there from dr Bernie tropra like i saw some on there from you know matt gibson from hudson garrett from all kind of big names in vascular access, a lot of key opinion leaders you know, throughout. So it's, it's evident that, you know, Ava's really committed to continuing to expand this and, and make as many resources available uh, for current and aspiring vascular access clinicians. So if, if the listeners listening right now, like what they hear about Academy, please head to www.theavaacademy.org or you can just go to joinavanow.com to join Ava and take advantage of not only discounts at Ava Academy, but the lengthy list of membership perks and discounted rates on everything from Academy courses to, I save that line apparel and hotels through our agreement with hotel engine, I mean, much, much more perks available. So a little bit later, we're going to turn the mic over to Ramsey and Skender from the Clinician Exchange to just and they're going to discuss the vision for centralizing our vascular access education and the importance of having AVA as its hub. Uh, but first, after the break, we'll have my conversation with Lauren Bakke as part of the Beyond the Manuscript series. Uh, so I just wanted to say, stay tuned for that. And, and thanks to Judy and John for hopping on to the, the show today and appreciate you guys talking. Thanks. My it's pleasure. It's a privilege to be with you. Infiltration studies are available, and the awareness of the issue is growing, yet it remains an underreported occurrence. IV Watch is committed to education on the prevalence of IV complications, identifying the risks of infiltration, assessment methods, and how IV Watch technology fits into clinical workflows to improve patient safety and outcomes. Clinical studies confirm the device, which is backed by decades of research and development has the capability of detecting infiltration events with a low volume of fluid and high sensitivity. Because the IV Watch Model 400 continuously monitors the IV site, it offers an improved measure of security to a standard unmonitored peripheral IV. Learn more about the Model 400 at ivwatch.com and visit myiv.com for educational resources. And welcome back to season two, episode seven of the I Save That podcast. I'd like to welcome Lauren Bakke uh, to the show for our next segment of Beyond the Manuscript. Lauren is the mother of little Everly Bakke, a beautiful 21-month-old girl who began her life in the NICU following an ultrasound at 33 weeks, which diagnosed her with congenital heart defects. One of Everly's IVs began to cause some problems and eventually became infiltrated. And Lauren wrote a brilliant patient perspective article outlining her experience as a mother and Everly's experience throughout the whole process um, during the initial days of her daughter's life uh, for the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access, which is set to be published in our summer issue, which is due out um, in the month of June. And Lauren has been kind enough to carve out some time in her extremely busy schedule to join us to discuss the perspective piece, uh, Everly, and, and more. And Lauren, I, I just want to welcome you to the show. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So give me a little background about how you decided to submit this manuscript um, to Java. I know you had some connections with myiv.com, which is a, a great resource for individuals like you in your position. So I um, got connected with um, myiv.com shortly after... Um, I had started publishing um, some blogs and some posts about how Everly was doing on social media, and it took me a while to be ready to be able to kind of share what was going on in our life just because it was a big whirlwind, but I felt like if I was able to help other parents or other patients or other families who might be in the same position that we were by hearing about our experiences, then I was willing to make myself vulnerable and really open up about what's been going on with us because I feel like I've had the opportunity to read blogs by other heart moms and other families with medically fragile children. And it's really helped me know what to expect and what kind of experiences they've went through. And it just helps me to learn and have some background experience. And I felt like 
Everly's peripheral IV infiltrate. I think it was kind of rare and kind of severe compared to any other cases of anybody else that I've really come in contact with from Mm -hmm. the congenital heart world. And so I feel like as a parent, I didn't really know anything about IVs. And to be honest, at first, I didn't really pay attention to them because I was so focused on her heart. And then I realized, well, like these are really important too and a lot to learn. And so I'm I'm just hopeful that somebody somewhere will not feel as alone because they were able to read this and relate. Definitely. Well, I as I understand it, it's been extremely well received uh, online and I'm looking forward to publishing it not only online on the JAVA website, but in the printed version of the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access. I really think that it's going to have a lot of benefit uh, with our, our membership base and our other subscribers. So can you maybe walk me through a little bit of, of how, you know, everything sort of happened, you know, the, the first with the discovery, I know you had the diagnosis at 33 weeks and kind of what, what did you and your husband, I'm sure it was an emotional time and, you know, how quickly did things move from there? It was kind of a long journey to get to the 33 weeks. I had had some, even just getting pregnant was a struggle. Um, right before Everly, I had had an ectopic pregnancy um, and then when I got pregnant with her, the doctor started following her really closely because once you've had one ectopic pregnancy, you're more at risk to have more. So right. we started monitoring her right away and she wasn't ectopic, which was great. And we were thrilled and excited. And then we got to 13 weeks and we're like, yes, we got there. This is great. Okay. Things are going well. And then I had some problems with my placenta and, um, my placenta actually ended up being in two pieces. So the doctors were monitoring to make sure that she was growing enough um, that they weren't going to have to take her out. So in hindsight, as much as it was really stressful to have so many doctor's appointments, so many OB appointments, it meant a lot of extra ultrasounds to check that she was growing. And in one of the ultrasounds at 33 weeks, the ultrasound tech said to me, you know, something just doesn't look right. Like the measurements just look a little bit off. And so my OB read the report and he said, okay, let's just, it'll probably be fine, but let's just make sure, you know, we don't want to have surprises and better to just know and not worry. And so then a few days later, they were able to get me in pretty quickly because again, we weren't sure if she would have to be induced early because of my placenta. So it's not like we could wait to get into, um, get a fetal echo. So I went to the fetal echo and the doctor looked at me and he said, so you came alone, huh? And I was like, (laughs) uh, yeah, so lay it on me, buddy. Yeah. And, um, you know, I really didn't think that something else was going to be wrong because I felt like enough had went wrong already. <laughs> but um, so he sat me down, he drew me a picture of my baby's heart and he said, your baby's not going to be able to leave the hospital without having surgery. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to call your husband tonight to explain this to him because I'm sure that you're, this is a lot for you to take in and I'm going to set you up to meet with these surgeons. These are the ones that I work with. You know, do your research, look around, look at hot, different hospitals. So that gave us, we pretty much had to have everything decided within a couple weeks. She was going to have to be induced. The hospital's out by us. We live in a suburb of Chicago. So we're about an hour and a half on a good day to get into the city. The hospitals out by us would not have been able to take care right. of her or handle yeah. her. And so we, I got induced out there. Once I picked a surgeon, um, we met with the surgeon. We met with the team. We toured the cardiac ICU. And, and so, I mean, we really got it in place pretty quickly. And I, I think that there were two good things. I think, one, it's good that there were problems with my placenta. Um, I'm glad I had a doctor who was really paying attention to it. I also, Definitely. for me, I'm actually kind of glad that I didn't find out at 20 weeks. I'm, I'm, it was a rush at 33 weeks, but I can't imagine how Techn- long I would have been a couple more worry. months there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would have been a lot longer to sit there and worry. Um, I don't think that would have been good for me or her. So we had enough time to make a plan, to have a safe plan, to have everything in place, but not too much time to sit and still. What an emotional time. I, I can't it even was. imagine. Wow. Yeah. I told and... every, I told a few people and I said, don't tell anybody about it. Don't talk to me about it. Don't ask me any questions. I don't know the answers. Do not post right. about it on social media. Yeah. Nothing. If I talk to you about it, you're allowed to talk to me. Otherwise, no. Sure. <laughs> and now I've changed because now I will tell anybody anything they want to know. Which is what we're doing it. right now. Yes. That's yeah. wonderful. So it, to, the, to the NICU, and, and I, as I understand it, 
it was a category five mortality risk, correct? Yeah. So um, her surgery, her the particular defect she has can sometimes be fixed with a one-time surgery that's a category four. Her heart did not grow enough from that 30, well, I had another um, ultrasound too, like 34 weeks to when she was induced at about 37 and a half weeks. It, her heart okay. didn't grow enough. So I just have a baby. I'm up all, you know, I'm in labor for 24 hours and the doctor walks in and he's like, so yeah, that's not going to happen. She's going to have the surgery that's the hardest surgery to do. It's um, harder than a heart transplant. It's, not, you know, and she's going to have surgeries for the rest of her life. And I'm like, okay. Um, so we got some different news right there, but they're like, here's the good news. Your surgeon, he does this surgery all the time. He's really good at it. Our rates for it are really good. So I, I, we really feel really good about that, how it's going to go. She's doing well right now. We're going to get her into surgery in a couple of days. We're going to give her a body a few days to kind of just regulate itself. And then we're going to be on our way and we have a plan in place. And so it all kind of changed again at that point, um, which was again, a lot to take in, but Certainly. I think I was more in a daze. I think I hit my husband a little bit harder than me because I was really tired. And I was just like, yeah. okay, well, as long as there's something you can do, I, okay, there's something you can do, fine, let's do it. So right. we'll do anything for her. Absolutely. So, right. and I know that, so you, she's in the NICU and, and the, the surgery and when, what was the first indication that you and your husband had that one of her IVs could potentially pose some problems down the line. Yeah. So I had her on a Friday morning and I asked to be released on Saturday afternoon because I wanted to go home for one night to see our seven-year-old um, mm -hmm. who was five at the time. And then we were going to go back the next day because that was going to, the Sunday would prep her for surgery and she'd go in for surgery on Monday morning. And so I wanted one night at home with him because then I knew we were going to be in the hospital for weeks, months. We didn't really know how long it would be. So I felt like this was my one kind of chance to get home and make sure he's all settled again. Because um, I had never really been away from him. So that was also a challenge. And that night, that Saturday night, a nurse called probably at like midnight and said, hey, this IV is not looking so great. I think we need to move it. Um, maybe we'll look at putting a pick line in. Mm -hmm. We just got to see what we can find. We're having a hard time. She's really small and we're just having trouble. And I was like, okay, okay, do whatever you got to do. I mean, we got to make sure the heart medication keeping her alive right now stays in. So whatever you have to do, find an IV spot. And I didn't think all that much of it. That IV came out. They put a new one in. They called back and they said, we didn't need a pick line. We got one in her foot. It's working great. And then I didn't think about it again because she sure. went, she got intubated, which seeing your newborn baby who's awake intubated is probably one of the worst things you can see. So I was so focused on that that I, and I wasn't looking at her IVs. I didn't even think that I should look at her IVs or inspect them or just, see what color they are. Right. She was just, you were just happy that she was accessed and getting the medication that right, the treatment right. she needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did not pay attention to that IV again until after surgery. So what did it look like after surgery? And, and is that after when you surgery, it, it was actually, it was still fine after surgery. And um, the nurses at some point, and there's so much that goes up and down. Um, the surgery she had called the Norwood, they come out with so many lines, so many tubes, so many monitors. I mean, there's something coming out of everywhere and things change instantly like you can try to keep like notes on this one up this went down this medication changed i mean really thank goodness these nurses are brilliant um right. and there's nurse practitioners that help the nurses and there's the doctors there's the intensivists there's the surgeons i mean there's a big team especially for those first couple days right out of the norwood surgery and so at some point they said oh it's not it's not looking so good and they pulled it out and it, nothing it looks fine and then all of a sudden this big yellow thing started to show up on her foot and it just kept getting bigger and more yellow as the days and weeks and months went on. And I had never seen, apparently it's called granulation tissue. I learned mm -hmm. I had never seen granulation tissue before. So the yellow of it was quite shocking to me that there was wow. this yellow stuff coming out of my newborn baby's foot. I don't, I don't doubt that. 
That's gotta yeah. be a big shock. <laughs> so, so you mentioned it's it was weeks and essentially months where it wasn't initially treated. I mean, how did things? Move oh no, it was. So we treated that? it right away. It just didn't okay. get better. Um, gotcha. So initially, it when the when there have been other infiltrate wounds, which I don't think have ever seemed to be as bad as this particular one, um, they had started by using like medicinal honey and some special bandages that kind of like pull out the kind of like burn, if you will. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I don't know all the medical terms exactly. I've learned a lot about the heart, but everything else I'm still learning. Um, sure, I am and too. So <laughs> they were they were shocked at first that it, it really wasn't getting better. And so then they thought, well, maybe she's going to need a skin graft and maybe we need to bring in the plastic surgeon. And um, the hospital that we go to actually has two campuses. So the pediatric plastic surgeon is not at the campus that we go to. So an mm-hmm. adult plastic surgeon came in and he looked at it and he's kind of like, I think it's going to heal fine. You know, she's a baby, babies heal fast. Let's just leave it alone for right now. Um, and to be honest, the cardio team was like, mm, no, we're going to try something else. So <laughs> they started putting a different topical cream on it. And in Everly's case, um, once she was discharged from the hospital, so we continued that treatment, but once she was discharged from the hospital, she was seen every week by the specialist team. Um, okay. she was part of a high risk team. And so I would send them pictures of her foot all the time and they were, they weren't pleased with how it was going. And so they said, we have to get you into the um, pediatric plastic surgeon at the other campus. This is something that we need somebody else to start looking at, you know, because they're cardiac specialists. Like that's, yeah, that's their specialty. What they do. Is. They focus on the heart. They were like, this right. is, we just think we need to get you somebody else. And then at that point we started to do some different dressing changes, some different medications, some, some different things, but um, she's 21 months old and her foot is still not healed. Mm-hmm. So, so um, how long did the, the initial treatment or when you started talking to the, the plastic surgery team, you know, how long was the, those weekly visits? How, how much time? Um, yeah. Months. I mean, we for sure were still seeing, she had a second surgery in December. That was um, going to be the question. How many And how many it was surgeries? half that. Yeah. She's mm-hmm. had three open heart surgeries now. And so that in December, we were still seeing the plastic surgeon all the time. We actually saw him just maybe a month and a half ago, too. It really, that big open wound took almost a whole year, maybe nine months to really oh close God. up. Um, and it, it wasn't helping our case. So babies like Everly, um, their first surgery is just kind of palliative in nature. It's just buying you time. Her oxygen level going to her foot was on a good day, 75%, you get a hundred. So her toes were blue. Her circulation wasn't awesome, but it was keeping her alive long enough to be able to have like a big fix, which she couldn't have that little. Um, So I, the thought process all along was really just that she's, it's not healing very quickly because she's not getting enough blood flow to it to help with the healing process. So that really wasn't working to our advantage. Um, right. Yeah. So, the prior complication was not, <laughs> I'm sure no one was anticipating the following complication with the IV infiltration, you know, because no. of her prior, you know, the CHD is number one priority. And then you have this come up as well. That's right. That's, man, that has to be, and we're grateful. be a very emotional time, but yeah, I mean, it I was, was just going to say, now it's, you have a bit of a silver lining. I mean, she's walking now, correct? And I know that she that is, probably yeah. went to a ton of work on on you and your husband's part, as well as the the care team. Yeah, you know, she finally you can touch it without it hurting her. Um, you know, that was that was I think the hardest part at home with the foot was like if you accidentally like it bumped against you as you were holding her, she screamed. I mean, it really, really was painful. So. Once it stopped being so sensitive, that was a huge relief. Um, and then once it closed up too, that was a big relief because then you didn't have to have dressings on it all the time or when we were trying to air it out a little bit to let it get air. So she did start walking. She started walking on the later end, probably less related to her foot and more related to the fact that she had a third open heart surgery when she was one, which is when most babies start walking. And then she did get an infection during that surgery. So they had to open her chest back up and clean out the infection in her lungs. Oh so goodness. that was quite a, 
quite a setback. So we came home with a PICC line and IV antibiotics at home. And, you know, Mm -hmm. she was really weak from that. And so I'm sure that that was probably more of why it took her a long time to walk. Her foot, when she walks right now, she bangs it, that right foot. Mm-hmm. You can tell that there's still something nervy going on. We're kind of trying to navigate what to do and how soon to do it, how much time to give her to kind of see if it gets better on its own now that she's getting good circulation and she's walking. But like when she wakes up in the morning, she starts pounding it. She doesn't want to keep a shoe on that foot. Her foot is bigger than the other foot. So putting shoes on her feet is it's a challenge. It's, you know, a mm-hmm. challenge. Yeah, finding shoes right. that fit. And and I, my, I was going to ask, I forgot to ask this earlier, did they ever identify what exactly you know, leaked? the the lipids or insulin or we it was one or the other that did it we don't know which one like how soon it started um Mm -hmm. infiltrating one of those two one went in and then the other went in it never was determined which one caused like the huge burn Uh, but i I think everybody was surprised by how bad it that either one would cause a burn that bad. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was a shock to to everyone, not not only you and your husband. Right. It's just so. So, what kind of what's next? Like, what what will I what lies ahead? You mentioned you have a follow up appointment with the surgeon coming up. Um, is there anything else with her with her heart defects? You know, what's kind of a a daily or weekly life for the Baki family with Everly? So she sees um, a speech therapist and a physical therapist at home each week. And initially she was working on mostly swallowing with the speech therapist, but now she's eating and chewing and doing well. Um, So now she's working on talking, um, which she's very opinionated, just working on getting some more words. And then physical (laughs) therapy is, um, was initially brought on because she was not walking um, and she was so Mm -hmm. delayed with the walking. So the physical therapist looks at massaging her foot um, to try to get some of the size to go down and the infiltrate. And then um, she really just is also paying attention to if she's going to maybe need like some type of orthotic like inserts in her shoe because Mm -hmm. of the infiltrate and where it is on her foot. We will see the cardiologist next week, actually. We were supposed to see him last week, but since she had a little cold, we postponed that. Everly was in August. She got a conduit put in her heart, which will not grow with her. So as Everly grows, every time she gets too big for that, she will need another open heart surgery until someday technology changes and Mm -hmm. they're able to make something that will grow with her. Because, you know, like 20 years ago, maybe even less than that, she wouldn't even have survived this long. So I don't hold on to the fact that like every three years, she's going to have another open heart surgery, or if she grows really fast, it's going to be sooner than that, which is the case right now. She's growing really fast, Mm -hmm. which is incredible. But that means that that our surgery we thought was going to be three years is now maybe, could it be this summer? Yeah. Could it be this fall? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Could it be three years from now? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's great. Everything she went through. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, what kind of, and with that, you know, another surgery you just mentioned, how did you as, as her parent learn from the IV infiltration to work with clinicians and sort of be her voice? And then now how did that experience, how do you think that's going to help you in the future with this upcoming surgery? Definitely made a lasting impact. So when she went in for Um, typically in heart patients, before they have an open heart surgery, they'll have a cardiac catheterization, which is, goes in through typically their groin and goes into their veins or their arteries to go up into the heart and get some more precise measurements so that the surgeons really know what's happening. Um, I had a lot of, please don't touch that foot. What kind of IVs are you going to use? Where are you going to put them? I had a lot of questions in that first Mm -hmm. cath before her second open heart surgery. Um, And then in her second open heart surgery, I was checking the IVs constantly. Um, And if any of them started to look a little bit swollen or like a little off, I asked the nurses, can we check this? Can we flush it? Can we see what's going on here? Is this IV actually working? Because I I feel like I had like a little bit of like post-traumatic stress from (laughs) that foot. I mean, when you you bring your newborn baby home and they're on a feeding tube that is done every three hours and you're taking care of their foot and they have medications that you, I mean, you can't be an hour off in their medications because 
their heart medications. Like, you mean, looking at her foot was one more thing. I didn't want that to happen to us again. Our, we have a really, really great team who the nurses did an incredible job looking at it every hour, but sometimes things don't, you can't see it. You know, it just, it, it right. just happens. I don't know how those things happen. You know, just like, why did her heart not form work correctly? I don't know. Our team has rounds three times a day where they, all of them stand outside the room. Oh, They'll come in, but in, it's, it's important for you to say what you think when you're standing in that circle of all of them. It can be intimidating and because you don't feel like you know as much as them, but they've done a really lovely job of reminding me that I'm the person that's there every single day. I'm the person that sees, no, you guys, nothing has changed. Like this isn't working or it did, this has changed. We have to do something differently. This isn't going well because, right. you know, they, they shift out, they change out each week and they give each other notes, but it's not the same as being the person who's there. And the first hospital stay, they asked me questions and they were great at trying to include me, but I was nervous and I was uncomfortable because I didn't know the terminology and I didn't understand as much what was going on. And by the second surgery and third surgery, I was able to say, what are you talking about? Explain that to me again. I'm sorry. That was a whirlwind. I need that. Tell me again what you told me yesterday again. So I think it's about being honest about what you understand and not just nodding along or not just agreeing um, because we are all part of a team. We're all working towards the same goal of survival, but then also not like now we expect these babies to survive. So mm -hmm. we need to look at their quality of life because surviving isn't just enough. I mean, we want them to have a great no. life. Like we want it to be a beautiful life for them. Absolutely. They deserve it. They've had, they've went through enough. That's the most important thing. And, and Everly has endured so much in her 21 months of life that, you know, many people, including myself, I have never gone through personally. So it's a, yeah. it's a credit to, to you and your husband and your family and the clinicians up in Chicago that helped out. Um, my, my final question is sort of just like a catch-all thing. You know, what, what are you wanting readers of your patient perspective that is set to be published in June, you know, kind of to take away from, from your experience and Everly's experience? I think um, the biggest thing, I have two things. One from the, like for the clinicians would be that sometimes it might seem like what you're doing doesn't matter or why am I checking this? Or I just looked at it. Why do I need to do it again? Or I just educated the parents. I, why do I got to tell them this again? And I, I would imagine that most clinicians do not feel that way, but how important it is for um, like those little things, like checking those IVs every hour, like every three hours isn't enough. There's a protocol every hour for a reason, or even, um, you know, there are specific IV teams that go around and put in some of the pick lines and IV lines and stuff. And I would like them to realize just what an important job they have, like mm -hmm. how important it is to be that specialist who does that all the time, because you're probably a lot more um, precise and accurate because you're doing it all the time. And then from, if there are parents reading this, that it, it is important to be your child's voice. You're, they can't most of the time, you know, talk for themselves, especially when they're a baby. And right. I just think that you're their advocate and you should not feel uncomfortable or hesitant to say what you understand, what you don't understand, what you see, what you don't see. Um, because these IVs are a big piece of what keep your baby alive because if that if ever didn't get those IVs she wouldn't have made it to have surgery right. so while her heart is the most important thing if she didn't get the medication through the IVs we wouldn't have even been able to look at fixing her heart I just I think it all kind of goes together and you just there's might, a reason that uh, vascular access is the the gateway to healthcare. it's yeah. it's a lifeline absolutely well Lauren, I, I can't thank you enough for hopping on uh, our show today to, to discuss your experience and, and Everly's, you know, first 21 months of her life with everything. I, I really am excited for our readers and subscribers and listeners to, to, to consume her story. And, and I think it's going to be incredibly helpful um, to not only parents who may be in a similar situation as you and your husband, but also clinicians as sort of a refresh that, you know, this is why we do what we do and we do it so well. So um, I, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And now joined by Skinner Darity, the president and CEO of the Clinician Exchange. 
She's an AVA partner that's helped us build the AVA Academy, and we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, what's in it for you as the vascular access specialist, the aspiring vascular access specialist, the rising, and the expert vascular access specialist in, uh, in joining AVA, but also advancing your education and your expertise in vascular access. Skender, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Ramsey. Really appreciate it. So let's, let's get a little background why, why these two guys here, um, two old industry guys, you got MedComp, you got J&J. Um, we both carried the bag. I think combined we have over 30 years of, of vascular healthcare experience at least. I don't want to make it sound like older than we are because we're, we're both very young and handsome. Um, but part of carrying... Younger anyway. We're getting younger every day. It's part of, part of being in AVA. It, it, it doesn't age you. It's like Benjamin Button. I uh, digress. When you carry a sales bag in vascular access, you're really playing the role of the educator. Um, and you and I have talked about this. Um, profit centers, commercial uh, uh, properties generally drive the innovation in vascular access. I remember listening to the episode on the oral history of Ava from, from uh, season one of the podcast when Suzanne Herbst uh, met with doctors Hickman and Groshong to source catheter materials and, and build what ends up being the, the modern flexible catheter going into patients. With all that background in mind, with our, our backgrounds in, in commercial enterprise and vascular access, what can the vascular access specialists expect from, from AVA Academy, something that you and I have been working on with our respective teams for, gosh, a year and a half now? Well, I, I think what's really exciting about it is, you know, speaking of my background in particular, right, I've been in healthcare for the last 15 years. The majority of that time was served in vascular access. Over the last few years, I've had an opportunity to to be more specialty agnostic, if you will. And we're working with, with companies and clinicians from all different specialties. And what I've seen is that in a lot of those other specialties, they typically have one central universal point right. of information, of education, someplace where all clinicians, all providers, all vendors, all patients go to to get their information. Right. And it's a great access point. Vascular access, when you think about it, has the largest patient subset of all specialties combined. By right? far. Every patient has the potential or is a vascular access patient at some point, yet the education and the information has always been disparate yeah. in this specialty. Do you think that's because vascular access is multidisciplinary? So you've got so many different home bases that end up coming together for the vascular access patient versus, say, psych or any other single like uh, discipline? It could be, but when you think about it, a lot of those other specialties, right? Cardiology starts off as a big, mm -hmm. uh, as a big moniker, but then it subdivides into so many other sections. So it's really not that vastly different than some of those other specialties. Okay. I think really what it was is just the objective of identifying the true vastness of the vascular access patient. Right, and understanding that it goes beyond a single product. A vascular access patient is not a pick patient. Right. It's not a port patient. It's not just an IV patient. It's any patient that's getting an access. It could be any and every one of those any patients. Any and every. I've been to long-term care facilities. I've seen this. You've seen it's it. It's one person. Exactly. So from that perspective, I think understanding that it transcends product, it transcends um, um, disease state, and really it speaks to all those patients, I think that's kind of been one of the challenges that, is, that has caused this. And I think now the exciting factor of this is, is that AVA has that opportunity to be that centralized, universal perspective that just emanates information on a constant basis, educates not only um, their own members, and that's the ideal capacity. But those that aren't necessarily AVA members today that should be coming AVA members at some point because they're the ones that are learning how to take better care of these patients. And I think that's the most exciting aspect of this. We, we've centralized vascular access education for the first time without making it around a particular device or brand. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, that's, that's really exciting. So all, all, all roads are going to be leading to AVA Academy. Um, and you talked about vascular access being disparate and, and needing a central point. So how did, how did AVA Academy, which is what we're talking about, how did that come together? And, and what can uh, the beginner, intermediate, expert vascular access enthusiast expect from AVA Academy? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it comes back, you know, to, to my last point. We're talking about the, the disparateness, uh, the disparity of information uh, and education out there. I think trying to find and create that universal uh, center uh, for the industry was really the key. And it came about through discussions that 
uh, you and I have had, uh, including your colleagues, in talking about how. How do we get this? Now, fortunately, from our perspective at the Clinician Exchange, we set up a foundation that allows for a software platform to be developed that allows for the mechanics to deliver that education. But really, we need the experts to come in and provide that, that true educational material. And so I think the marriage between the Clinician Exchange AVA is really what helped this blossom, is us setting up the, the technical platform for it and you building upon it with the, the, the true expertise that, that adds the flavor to it. And I think that's where this marriage really started to blossom. The, the software and programming super geeks with our needle and cannula and ultrasound super geeks. <laughs> you, you, you put them together, we make AVA Academy. But, you know, it goes beyond just the Super Geeks, right? Super Geeks is only, only the technical aspect, and, right. and you can measure that on the paper, right? It's the thing that you can't measure. It's that passion yes. for the growth of patient betterment, patient care. Um, and, again, with most of my experience being in vascular access, my team and my company, we have that. But clearly that's what Ava has, and I think that's the X factor that takes us to the next level. Right. So when you, when you put yourself in the role of, of the student and maybe – you've just caught the vascular access bug or you're starting to realize, hey, when I was in nursing school or when I was in med school and residency, this was kind of a crash course and see one, do one. I want to do better by my patients. I want to do better by my discipline. I want to do better by my practice. Uh, how do I know what to do? I find Avite through either this show or the internet or a colleague. Where am I going to start? What, what can I expect to see at Ava Academy? What you can expect to see at AVA Academy is, is, is education for all subsets of experience, mm -hmm. right? For the novice and the beginner who wants to hone their skills and really start to understand how they can take better care of their patients. Um, you know, from a learning perspective, you can find those, those rudimentary type skill sets that help you excel to become a more advanced uh, practitioner of vascular care. Uh, beyond that, you know, if you're an intermediary or even an ex experienced a person, an experienced clinician, you have an opportunity to go there and really identify ways to learn from your peers, right? Most of the information that is provided in there, and, and I don't want this to be a commercial about the clinician exchange by any means, but it kind of is a little bit. <laughs> but part of what we did in, in, in constructing our company was we set up a way to network with thousands, if not tens of thousands of clinicians across the country because that's where the expertise lies. The expertise lies in their information that's inherent in their heads based on all the collective experience that they put together. And so that's what Ava's done now. The educational modules that are there today and that will be developed for tomorrow aren't just coming from somebody in a back room that said, hey, you know, I've got a great idea today. We're going to write a class about ultrasound-guided peripheral IV. No, it didn't come from them. It's actually coming from practicing clinicians who have identified ways to perfect, improve, and really advance the practice of that. So that's what I think is the most exciting mm -hmm. aspect of this, is whether you're a novice or, or an experienced person, you have an opportunity to learn from those that are doing and have done. It's, it's, uh, it's fun to hear you know, us talk about it since you and I have been behind the scenes. I'm asking Skinner questions, kind of the answers to, because we, we've been there the whole time. Um, what, when, when you start to see just how this is coming together and also the future, um, the AVA Academy is really exciting. I'll tell our listeners who aren't aware, AVA Industry Partners, uh, one of the, the perks of being an AVA Industry Partner, it's not just um, a once-a-year affair when they come to our, our scientific meeting, which is an amazing meeting. Uh, we work with our industry partners all year, and with the, uh, the launch of AVA Academy, AVA embraces the role of industry in education, in delivering education, and in innovating uh, practice. And the AVA Academy becomes an outlet for our industry partners to help us build out the educational library for the beginner, for the interme intermediate uh, clinician, and for the expert. And that's across uh, modalities, across disciplines. And so this is just the beginning. We are launching Ava Academy now. It only begins to grow from, from there. And I'm excited for our industry partners to give us CE material uh, that, that uh, our, our members and potential members can use to, to beef up their, their education. But also uh, what I think we'll call community education, stuff that's not CE. I mean, it doesn't, you, can, you can learn from those presentations. They don't have to be firewalled off and, and, and accredited 
to be of value. And those will be clearly marked in AVE Academy. It's not, nothing's going to be a Trojan horse or anything. But uh, we think that you know, education is power, and we want to give you as much access to it as possible. Yeah, I, I think, again, that's, that's the power of this, of this vehicle and being that universal subset is if we can draw more people to it, more people can benefit from mm-hmm. it, right? And that's, it's, it's, the more you give, the more you get. And that's what I think, whether you're an industry partner, whether you're a, a practicing provider, whatever it is, the more you give to this, the more the industry is going to get. And that's what I think is, is the power of what we've developed. It is. And, and we're excited to have it launched. Skender, thanks for all the work that you've done on AVE Academy, and thanks for your time today. He's Skender Darity, President and CEO of the Clinician Exchange, who partnered with AVA to build the AVA Academy. Thank you, Ramsey. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Eric back again with a quick look at the upcoming AVA Network events. Spring has sprung, and with that brings numerous educational opportunities. On Friday, May 17th, Norvan hosts its 10th annual Educational Day at the Sacramento Marriott Rancho Cordova. This is an all-day event featuring the following five speakers, Russ Nassoff, Naomi O'Grady, Marsha Ryder, Keegan Mahoney, and Gail Egan. These five individuals hit on a series of different vascular access topics from PIV failure, CLABC rates, CDC guidelines, catheter to vessel ratio, and more. That evening on the other end of the country in Cava kicks off its fifth annual symposium with a Friday night dinner in Raleigh, North Carolina. The dinner is set for 6 p.m., and the symposium ramps up early Saturday morning at the Hampton Inn in Suites in Raleigh. Then on Tuesday, May 21st, Chatavan hosts Caroline Draper for a presentation on extended dwell PIVs titled A New Tool in the Toolbox, The Emerging Evidence. That event is scheduled to be held at the Alia Restaurant in Chattanooga. CBA Van and Neo Ava both fill the network calendar the next evening, the 22nd, with the former welcoming Chris Cavanaugh for its second meeting of 2019. Chris's presentation is titled New Weapons in the Fight Against CRBSI. Then 2019 Herbst Award winner Tim Spencer brings a conversation on catheter-to-vessel ratio to Neo Ava, with dinner and a vendor fair also available. On Thursday the 23rd, Boke Ava hosts Shelly DeVries for a dinner and a conversation on how we can improve dressing disruption and vascular access at the Brimestone Restaurant in Pembroke Pines, Florida. And to round out next week's busy list of network events, Golf Vans Ultrasound Guided Peripheral Vascular Access Simulation Workshop begins at 9 a.m. on Saturday, May 25th at St. Joseph's Hospital in Tampa. Be sure to visit avainfo.org calendar to see the events set over the course of the month of May and into the summer. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. We'd like to thank guests Lauren Bakke and Skender Deerte for joining us for this episode of the I Save That podcast. Thanks to all of our loyal listeners, and as always, thanks to Dabney Coleman. Have a great spring, everyone. The information discussed on the I Save That podcast is solely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information that we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this video or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.